The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. What's good, y'all? My name is Chris Milam, and I'm a singer, and I'm a songwriter, and I'm a songer. And you're damn right, I'm a singwriter, too, from Memphis, Tennessee, It's been a minute. (laughs) It has been a hot minute. Before I get to my conversation with Raining Sounds' Greg Cartwright, we've got some catching up to do. First, I hope this finds you safe and healthy. 2020 continues to impact every single one of us. So please stay safe. Please be considerate. And please, 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 vax your gorgeous body. Now, you are listening to The Mix. What is The Mix? The Mix is an hour-long conversation where I ask successful artists one simple question. What songs mean the most to you? Across season one's 12 episodes, I talk to personal heroes and beloved artists alike, diving deep into personal histories, artistic influences, creative process, and so much more. William Bell describing the first time he met Sam Cooke. Garrison Starr's experience growing up gay in the oppressive confines of her evangelical church. Matt Ross Spang's life-changing work and friendship with John Prine and the artist's inspiring final chapter. The list goes on. Season one was a blast and, surprisingly, (laughs) a success. After iTunes listed the mix among its new and noteworthy an audience, you, rapidly formed around these conversations. And y'all, my favorite thing on earth is making music. But my second favorite thing on earth is talking about music. (laughs) So I can't tell you how much it meant to make these connections with you over the course of season one. So, buoyed by that, producer Gil, producer Gil, and I began work on season two in February 2020. Yeah, we all know what happened next. But before COVID-19 shut the world down, we were able to bank one episode, today's episode, with rock luminary Greg Cartwright. It's a great talk. We'll get to it very quickly. But first, I'm going to answer a couple questions. First, what's up with season two? Since the mix has always been an in-person conversation, and since I planned to catch season two guests while they were touring through Memphis, quarantine stopped everything. That said, it is my intention to continue season two and beyond as things continue to open up. It needs to be physically possible to have these conversations. Sure, uh, the wheels of touring and congregating and all that need to continue to turn. But also, y'all, I'll be honest, interviews like this tend to be a bonus for artists. Uh, They're kind of fun extras that you do when you're afforded the time and the energy. And so many working musicians haven't had much of either in the last year and a half. So that's something that I've felt. That's something I want to continue to be sensitive to. So season two production will continue when it's both safe and also just kind of reasonable to do so. Please stay tuned. Another frequently asked question, producer Gil, what is up? Y'all, Gil moved to Florida. Now, I know I joke a lot about Gil, his 19 children, his motocross background, his trout farm. Sure, 
but I'm not joking today. In a twist of fate that, in hindsight, we should have all seen coming, Gil has become Florida man. Please think of Gil every time you read his headlines. Florida man weds albino gator. Florida man robs daycare. Fly high, old buddy. Bye, con Dios. Also, to, Dil- to Gil's credit, this show has always sounded awesome. He's done an amazing job as producer, and today's intro is subpar for reasons that are completely out of his control. I'm recording it at home, and it is not up to the producer Gil standard, but we're all doing what we can these days. Now, I also know what you're wondering. What's on the merch table? Holy shit, it's a new album. Newish. April 7th, 2020, I put out a new album called Meanwhile. COVID prevented it from having a typical release and touring schedule, but it is still available to buy at chrismilem.com. You can kind of read the story behind it, the liner notes, the lyrics, all that good stuff. And of course, you can just stream it online wherever you do your streaming, Spotify, and others. I am uh, tremendously proud of the album. And I'm optimistic that it'll get it to do as things continue to open up. So please stay tuned. Uh, plans are in the works for some safe tour dates later this year. And yeah, I just can't wait to share these songs with you in person. Finally. Speaking of songs, let's talk about Greg Cartwright. As singer and songwriter of Raining Sound, Greg Cartwright has pulled off rock's toughest trick. Dependability. A luminary of garage rock, Cartwright's talent, craft, and inexhaustible curiosity have produced 30-plus years of music that miraculously never disappoints. Lyrically and vocally, Cartwright straddles the sweet and acerbic somehow at the same time. I don't know how he pulls this off. Raining Sound songs are knowing, they're petty, they're tender, they're brash, they're exultant, beautiful, always, always generous. Originally dubbed a garage rock band, they transcended that genre long ago. Sure, they can do three chords in a cloud of dust with the best of them, but Cartwright's music is also dense, it's textured, it's wondrously multidimensional. It supports dozens, or in my case, hundreds, of listens, and it always invites more. Their new album, A Little More Time with Raining Sound, is out now as of uh, May 21st. I'm thrilled to report that I've had it on repeat for weeks now, and it boasts another collection of songs that are unmistakably Cartwrights, but with something new to say. It's one thing to make great albums, it's another to be incapable of making a bad album. Greg Cartwright is that rare breed, and an artist that I'm deeply grateful for. Finally, a little bit more context about this conversation. As I said, It was recorded February 2020, but it's now released in the summer of 2021, so it's something of a time capsule. That moment wasn't so long ago on the calendar, but it was long ago in history. So in retrospect, I think Greg was actually the perfect guest. Because what I'm craving today, more than anything, is live music. I'm craving a room so small that you can feel the body heat and the floor shake. A band so loud, there's no sense in even trying small talk. A stage so close, you can see the sweat. 
Give me the raw, the boundless joy of rock and roll. Really anything with a scream from the gut, a vein in the neck. Anything urgent, uncompromising, free. Live music today isn't just about renewal, it's about redemption. It's a shared heartbeat and it's why I need music now more than ever. And it's exactly how I fell in love with Raining Sound 20 years ago. Here now is the mix. Craig Cartman. Well, I am delighted to be joined in the studio today by Greg Cartwright. Greg, how's it going? I'm doing really well. Thanks for having me here. Of course, uh, you came in, among other things, to uh, play a show at Hernando's Hideaway last night. How'd that go? It went great. Just a uh, solo? It was just solo, and uh, or that was the idea. And then yesterday when I got into town, I went over to Jeremy Scott's house, who's the bass player from the original Raining Sound. We wound up rehearsing for about an hour, which we had intended to do just to try to get the vocals going and everything. We got some shows coming up and we had so much fun. I said, well, why don't you just come and do this show with me? So I did a few songs by myself and then Jeremy and I did some songs. And then at the last minute, Greg Robertson, our drummer came in and he was like, yeah, I just wanted to pop in real quick. Uh, we're like, okay, well, let's, you're here. Let's do a few songs with the three of us. So we did like maybe three songs as a trio and that was really fun too. Uh, impromptu reunion show. Exactly. Yeah. Well, the idea of kind of Greg Cartwright projects suddenly accumulating more members is something I want to put a pin in and come back to. Um, but let's start at the beginning before we dive into your mix here. Uh, you were born in Memphis, March 18th, 1972, uh, raised in Fraser. Is that right? That's true. Okay. Um, was your family musical? Not really anybody that was uh, within a generation that I actually knew okay. that I got to meet or anything. I know that there were some people on my dad's side of the family. My great-grandmother ha always had a bunch of instruments at her house, a big uh, stand-up bass and some horns and a piano and stuff. But it's one of the things like when I would go visit, all that stuff was there. But nobody ever played it. <laughs> I so you. I don't know how she acquired them, or, you know, or if, if uh, people, if she got those because people owed her money or <laughs> I really have no idea. But um, no, nobody really played. Um, but my dad was, was a pretty avid uh, record collector, music fan. And he really inspired me to uh, get into music because he was just way into it. I mean, it clearly it meant a lot to him always music in the house and uh he definitely had his favorites some things that were very uh generational touchstones like the beatles and stuff but also some things that were a little more there were a little uh less mainstream okay that i really hooked on to and just thought in my mind everybody listened to it because we listened to it all the time in my house so i didn't know any better for example uh, well, like the Harry Nilsson stuff. Okay. And you hear Harry Nilsson a lot now. Like I've heard him in TV shows. And, and I mean, it's not like he was an obscure artist in the 70s. He, he had like million selling records. But people didn't listen to the entire catalog the way my dad did. I, I see. mean, so I, I was very familiar with all the records, not just like the hit singles and stuff. And, and, it just really struck me because it was, uh, here was this guy with incredible vocal range. Mm. He could go, you know, way high, this incredible falsetto, and then all the way back down in the same breath, you know, just like really incredible. Well, perfect segue then. Uh, we'll start your mix with Harry Nelson, Daddy Song. 
years ago in a man. He was my mother's biggest fan. We used to walk beside the sea, and he'd tell me how life would be when I grew up to be a man. And years ago we used to play. This is off Aerial Ballet, came out in 1968. Uh, what's your relationship to this song specifically? I'm guessing it involves your dad. <laughs> it does it, it does involve my dad. And it, the song itself involves dads. And the, right. And the song is Daddy's Song. And from what I understand, I think Harry Nilsson grew up in Brooklyn. And uh, they were living well below the poverty line. And his father, I think, abandoned the family at some point, And he mainly grew up with his mom. And this song is a very is kind of about that mm. uh, having a father figure that just disappeared and you don't really understand why and you, the dad doesn't tell you he disappears the mom doesn't really explain it in any way that a child's mind can right. understand what's happening so you just keep fantasizing happy things right and that's the way the song is it's a very upbeat it's a kind of have a, has a happy right sadness to it and that's always I remember that. Uh, Someone explaining rock and roll to me in that uh, in that way um, when I was younger that you know rock and roll is uh, happy music about really sad stuff mm-hmm. and that's exactly what this song is. <laughs> well, I certainly see a lot of overlap there in your songwriting too. Um, yeah, and it's interesting because the mother's relationship to the father in this song really she only gives enough information to the kid to just completely undermine his happy myth. Exactly. Of the dead. Exactly. And just leaves him with this destroyed fantasy, but nothing more, really. Yeah. And, and certainly no answers. No answers. Um, do you remember the first time you heard this song? Uh, I mean, I was probably four, five. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Pretty young. Pretty young. And this was just, uh, my dad just loved this record. We always listened to it. And this, so there's, it's on that album. And then there was another album that, uh, Harry Nilsson did, and I suggest you listen to both because they're both, I think, pretty close, but a little bit different. He did one of the very first remix albums in the early 70s where he took the tracks from his first two RCA albums, completely remixed them, added new vocals, stripped pieces out, added more instrumentation, and remixed the best parts of each album to go into one another with almost no break between the songs. Oh, wow. Okay. And nobody had ever made a remix that was like it was not a thing yet right um and this particular song is on the remix album too and it's really interesting both versions are good it's such a it's such an interesting arrangement um would you say that how would you say that his songwriting and or kind of studio approach has impacted your own well he heavily influenced me because especially when i became uh in my early 20s late teens early 20s and I met a few people who had some home recording gear, four-track machines and stuff like that. And I started to realize how easily you could make, your, you could, make you could record your songs, uh, edit them and retool them and uh, lay down individual tracks to kind of build this thing just like a real studio, right? right? And the thing about Harry Nilsson is such a big part of his sound is vocal doubling, tripling, right. quadrupling his own voice. Right. Because he sounds so good with himself, right? Like, right. I mean, he can 
He can do all these different ranges so he can stack his voice and build this really wild sounding thing. And that was something that's when you discover home recording, that's the first thing you learn how to do, right? That's kind of magical mm. when you hear your voice doubled or when you like sing a lot, sing a harmony with yourself or whatever. And you can, it like brings that other part of your voice out that makes you not so ashamed of your voice anymore. Right. It's like sure. sprinkle some fairy dust over it or something, you know, it's like, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. That's how the, that's the magic. Right. That's how the, the Beatles did it, you know, the double that vocal and it just like, the different the differences in them play to the strength of the whole when you stack them. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, I was really struck listening back to this song in particular by how much he's in he influenced Elliot Smith, for example, in just that very same way. So much doubled vocal, yeah, um, and and kind of like almost baroque arrangements sometimes. Um, yeah, it's like a it's you're definitely hearing the singular vision of of one artist and only one artist, but there's several of them at the same time. Right, know? and you hear like, and with Harry Nilsson's early, with those first two RCA albums, there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of different ideas going on. It's like definitely 67, 68, psychedelic music, strings, horns, pretty much everybody's ready to throw the whole kitchen sink into a production, but he does it really tastefully. He and his producer at the time do it really tastefully and also he's like scat singing and like, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, you know, it's like, um, and those first couple records later, he had big success um, with RCA when he paired with another producer and made more kind of radio, like jump into the fire and mm. some of the big hits and stuff from Nielsen Smilson and stuff like that. Um, that's what people generally think of, but this more, the earlier kind of more psychedelic pop, um, Baroque kind mm -hmm. of Nilsson stuff is really fast. It's all great. I mean, you can't go wrong. Let's drill down on the singing uh, in particular. Um, he, he, is, he is one of the greatest uh, pop singers of that era for sure. And he has such a, you mentioned his range. He's incredibly dexterous. Um, but I would also pay the same compliment to you. Um, and, and one of the things that really has always struck me about your singing is that you're able to do a lot of different things and what people would try to classify as like a conventional garage rock type of format or whatever, but you can bring so many different elements to that song. Um, I think maybe my favorite characterization of your voice came from a Stephen Hyden feature uh, several years ago. He said, um, its most distinguishing feature is the physical sensation it provokes in a listener's body, a sweetly painful combination of a light, hollow chest and a heavy, churning gut. Um, I couldn't have said it better myself. Who, Nilsson, among others, who are your biggest influences as a, as a singer? Yikes. <laughs> I got a lot of uh, influences. Uh, I love, um, there's so many things. I mean, growing up, just so many things I was introduced to. And over the years, I am pretty, uh, I'm always looking for something that I haven't heard. Mm. That, the, thing that, the thing that is most, um, I'm trying to think of the best way to put it. I tell you what, the so many singers that I heard when I was younger, I would try to imitate. And that's how I think every singer starts, right? You know, you hear things that you like and you try that on. Kind of uh, um, try to emote like a certain person you like or write a song like a certain songwriter you really appreciate and try to get that feeling that that person has to find out how do they get that feeling. Right. 
And that's, it's the feel more than the technique that is not the most important thing. It's just the thing that I can get. Mm-hmm. I don't have a ton of range. I mean, I had more when I was younger, but I smoked cigarettes, sure. <laughs> all this stuff. So like, you know, <laughs> the, the high notes are not there anymore, but that's okay. I mean, I'm totally, um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty self-confident inside my voice with what I can do with it. Um, but I can do more with dynamic and feel than I can with like just out and out range. Mm. So a, 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 like a real feel that's personal and um, makes you feel like you're really hearing that person. That's what's right. important to me. And the first person I have to say, so David Bowie and the Beatles and all this stuff that I heard, Harry Nelson, uh, Sir Douglas Quintet. There are so many people that I really admire, uh, Gene Clark and uh, the Everly Brothers. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it just goes on and on and on because I'm always trying to find new things that I really like as well. But the, pers- the person who probably really influenced me most in discovering my own voice rather than copying other singers was uh, Jack Yarber, who uh, played with me in The Compulsive Gamblers sure. and The Oblivions. And when I met him in 88 or somewhere around there, 88, 89, maybe, I think 88, um, we got hooked up by a mutual friend who was a drummer in town, Terry Tate. And we got together and started um, jamming together. He was looking to form a band and I was looking for somebody to play with. And it seemed like a good fit. We had some uh, mutual interest musically and also Jack is hilarious. So it's like one of those things like you just want to hang around him because he's funny and fun and and such a nice guy. But once we started playing music and I heard him sing and like heard these songs that he wrote and stuff, I was just knocked out because I was like, I've heard all this stuff. I've heard all these records. I've heard local people doing their thing, trying to sound like I've heard metal bands trying to sound like Sunset Strip bands, mm-hmm. from, but they're from Memphis. And I've heard folk rock bands do that. And I've heard rockabilly, Memphis rockabilly bands try to sound like Hayden Thompson or whatever. Right, you know, it's like, right. but I had not heard anybody doing whatever they wanted and singing just like their, their very own voice. Mm-hmm. I felt like I'd never actually encountered someone. Um, on a local level, who was just completely authentic. Mm. And he was. And I just thought, I got to figure out how to do this. Right. Not how to sound like him. Right. But how do I sound like me? Right. And, uh, and so that was a, a huge thing for me. When did you feel like you got there? It took me a long time. Me too. <laughs> so I was on the road for a long time. But it's nice to know um, that you're, you're in motion <laughs> right? and not simply copying other people all the time. You can, you know, identify all these things in other people's songs and in their craft that you would like to try out. Um, but that doesn't, but that doesn't mean you have to do it exactly like they do it. You, there's something about the feel mm-hmm. that you want to, you want that emotion in something you're doing. Right. And you don't have to copy what they're doing to, to do it. That's something I was really struck by listening to um, your live work that's been released over the years is I think by any measure, you are a great singer. And that certainly shines through on, um, you know, 
your studio recordings. But in your live work, the, the first thing that comes through is you're simply performing the song as it is. And there's a, and a wonderful lack of preciousness about um, getting everything just right, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, no, and when it comes to live performance, it is all about communication. Mm. So the the great thing about being in the studio is that it's kind of an isolated experience where you're you're trying to build this piece of art mm -hmm. and uh, nuances. You want them in certain places. You want the dynamic to be just so because it creates this kind of oral thing that people can listen to over and over and over again if it does its job correctly right. that they will want to. But live is not about that. Mm -hmm. Live is just about you and those people and how to best make them feel like you are speaking directly to them. And the best way to do that is just to put yourself 100% in it. Right. And um, let them see that that's exactly where you are. And so... For me, that's yeah. It is uh, energy tr trumps everything, right? In the and when it comes to playing live, yeah. It took me the longest time uh, to realize that when it came to live performance, I had to stop being perfect and just start focusing on being there. And, yes, and actually, in that way, like perfect is kind of the enemy of goodness or even greatness. Eventually, um, this is an exciting mix, and I'm really excited to talk about all of these songs. I'll admit to sometimes I'll look at when I'll ask a guest to come on and they agree, I'll kind of in my mind start thinking, oh, I wonder what they're going to send me. And, you know, at least artists, if not song titles, I was completely caught off guard by your list and, and in the best possible way. I want to move on to the modern lovers at Plea for Tenderness. But if you care about me, what do you say, modern man? Tell me now. Scream it. If you care about me when I come over and I don't hear you scream it. Tell me now. This girl cares about me, then she has to tell me now. What is it about this song that means so much to you, Dave? Um, I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> I just love, I love all the Modern Lovers stuff, mm. especially all the stuff um, that from the first, um, their first recordings and these first batch of live recordings from the early 70s. So, I mean, this stuff is like 71 or so. Right. And um, punk rock doesn't exist. I mean, glam rock barely exists at this point. Right. And they're already, they sound like a 90s band already. Like, That's right. It's like, it's it's so far ahead of everybody else. And now Jonathan Richman, I've heard him talk about this period. And he's like, well, it's so, in his mind, it's so derivative of the Stooges or... um other things that he liked, like Iggy Pop and the Velvet Underground. But, and that's true. Those influencers are there and they're clear to hear. But he has synthesized those two things in a way that it's like, okay, here, I'm going to take these two things and put them together. And it's like, here's the next 30 years right. of recorded music. And out of that band comes Jonathan Richmond's solo career. The drummer goes on to be the drummer in the cars. Keyboard player goes on to start Talking Heads. Right. Guitar player goes on to start The Real Kids. Right. It's like, I mean, that is power pop and new wave and punk, and it's all right there, and it just kind of goes from there. Have you ever experimented with this style of songwriting yourself? Because most of your work is so beautifully concise. <laughs> yes. 
And that, that well, <laughs> and that one that's like one of uh, Jonathan Richmond's things that you hear him say all the time in these sets for these early live recordings. He's like, "We're in precise modern lovers order or something." And <laughs> the other guys like joke about it later. They're like, "It was never in order. It was always kind of chaotic." Right. Um, but I mean, to me, like I love this song because it's so simple. Mm. It's such a rock and roll song. It's simple. But then it has like a big bridge that goes minor. Mm-hmm. And he's talking about like, you know, it's just a wonderful, like innocence and love and like being that age and like barely in your 20s and trying to understand how relationships work. Right. And um, being in love with poets and um, trying to understand how to be with another person and sex and, uh, you know, like, Kind of at that time, 71. So it's a, basically the tail end of the 60s. Everybody in Boston that's hanging out in the, is where they're at is like drugs, hippies, um, counterculture stuff, where everybody's pushing towards the extremes. And here's this guy who's like, I, don't, I just eat health food. <laughs> I, just, I don't want to do drugs. I just want to, I just want a girl that I really, really love. Right. <laughs> it's like, right. it's, it's like a rejection right. of, of the um, cultural changes, but at the same time, maybe pushing it further. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like being like, this is not enough for me. I want more than just to get high. I want more than just, you know, it's like, this is not, everything that you're doing is not a real revolution. I reject it. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. You're really crystallizing just kind of what I was thinking about this morning as I was listening back to it. Um, Yeah. He, he's, He's just reject, rejecting anything he deems nonsense. Yeah. Even right down to like the, you know, the lines about like, I don't want to hear about your cat. You yeah. Know, just, <laughs> we we have to get bigger here. You <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah. Let's have a real conversation. Exactly. And then at the end, like, I love that he's like, <clears throat> then he's like, okay, we've talked about this. Now I want to, we're going to go down, we're going to drop down to E minor or whatever. And mm-hmm. like, and I'm going to tell you that I understand all the dark, awful, like, bad parts of life. I understand the beauty of death. I understand. Because like, that's the thing is like, this is like a great song in this early canon of Jonathan Richmond because so much of the stuff at this time is about love and, you know, um, innocence and um, longing and all this kind of stuff. But he tends to talk so much about positive things like, or kind of have a, a, a really wonderful outlook of life and talk about love that people think that it's naive. It's not naive. Mm. And that's the beauty of like the back part of the song. He says, you know, okay, take it down. I understand all the bad, awful right. shit. Like, um, uh, so I'm not naive. Right. But I just want, you know, like I, I understand all that, but that's not what I want. Right. So I think that's like a beautiful, Kind of also, it's a little punky, right? To kind of take it minor and just like, nah, 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 <laughs> and then get that lift at the end where he comes back up to end it like on a high note again, right? Yeah, this is perfect. Now that you're outlining it in that way, I definitely see the overlap with your own songwriting. Um, I want to ask you about Seminoles. Open your eyes.
this came out in 1961. This is a fascinating recording and song. Uh, do you remember the first time you heard this? I do. Okay. Uh, I think I heard this first at Jim Shaw's house in Detroit. I think it is a Detroit record, is it not? I can't remember it is. now. Um, but it's one of those things, like, I love doo-wop, and I had a lot of friends, um, and still have a lot of friends who collect doo-wop records, uh, doo-wop 45s and stuff. And this is, like, kind of your dream doo-wop record. It's got um, a real, it's kind of a crude recording. Mm-hmm. And the the beautiful thing of a crude recording is most of these setups at this time when this was cut, you're talking about two microphones. Right. And so everything is about mic placement. Everything and everything is maybe some compression and some reverb, but then basically you hear the room. Right. And so everything, rather than like now where everybody close mics everything and, and there's all these mics and you figure it out later. There's two mics, and you have people moving groups of people around the room, moving the mic around the room until you find just this sweet spot where you hear everything equally or like in a dynamic that is pleasing to the ear. Mm-hmm. Um, and this room, this record just kind of nails that. Like sometimes it works, sometimes it's a little lackluster, and maybe the vocal's not loud enough or. You know, the, and the, some of these kind of cruder recording studios and setups that are like in the back of TV repair shops and stuff. Right. They're not, they're not like nice studios. Right. And this one in particular, though, it's just like the vocals are amazing. The guitar is so kind of crunchy and nasty. Right. And um, and then the sentiment, you know, right, is just beautiful. <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's almost. It's so raw. And I mean, that comes down to the recording style that you're, you're talking about, but also just, you know, that just bellow that the song begins with. It, it challenges you yeah. from the beginning. And that guitar, like the down, right. down, down, down. Right. It's so menacing. Right. <laughs> it's like, it's not happy at all. It's very like moody and brooding and like everything about it. And then when the vocal comes in, like I was saying about the, you know, like mic placement, big room full of sound. There's something about not singing directly into a mic that you hear on records like this and like some of the early rockabilly and stuff where because the person is not singing directly on the mic, right. you're, you hear the room. Mm-hmm. And when you hear that room, there's a sense of depth. There's a sense of you being in the room. Right. You're not. But you can imagine yourself right. in the room. And to me, that is, people wonder why record collectors run around chasing these little small label 45s that were never hits and nobody cares about. Because there's some great songs on there, but also there's a sense of uh, time and place. It's an amazing historical artifact because it can transport you almost to that room. Right. You know, and that, and and part of it is because it's not a professional recording. But at the same time, it's like home movies and stuff. You know, right. it's like you you see real people doing real things and makes you feel like you're there in their yard or something. You know, and it's the same thing with these small label forty fives. Right. Uh, you mentioned that Jim Shaw actually introduced you to the song. Um, how'd you meet him? I mean, he's kind of an, an icon of that scene, right? 
Yeah, he, um, I think I first met Jim at a house party at his brother Steve's house in Detroit. And Steve was in the Detroit Cobras. Mm. And they had just started playing. And I was, I was in the Oblivions at the time. We played there. And Jim came and had like a little um, small recording device with a microphone. He just kind of walk around like this. Almost like he was holding a pen or something, but it was a little thin microphone. And that was his thing was that he would record shows all the time, whoever it was, bands that his brother said, hey, this band's going to come play over at this house party. He would come over, record it. He would go see shows and record them. Um, and when he passed away, a lot of that stuff um, just sat. And then uh, Sandy Kramer made some of the recordings available. There was like an early Gories show that um, he had recorded that wound up coming out on Third Man. Okay. Um, that is really cool. But yeah, so he was a real avid, you know, live concert um, person who, who loved to record shows and then just listen back to them and archive them. All his local bands from Detroit that he was friends with, but people traveling around and stuff too. And I think that was how I first <laughs> met him. Then we found out we had several mutual friends uh, through Detroit Memphis connections and people who were from Detroit but lived in New York that I was also friends with and stuff. And we just became uh, closer and closer over the years. We got to be really, really good. But I would say best friends. He was definitely my best friend. This episode is brought to you by Music Export Memphis. Music Export Memphis creates opportunities for Memphis artists to showcase their music outside the city building their careers and Memphis's international reputation as a music mecca. In the past year, their COVID-19 Artist Emergency Fund has granted more than $300,000 to music professionals. But there's so much more. Festival showcases, ambassador programs, scholarship and merchandise funds. MEM supports artists in tangible, sustainable ways. Visit musicexportmemphis.networkforgood.com to learn more and get involved. I want to ask you about Gene Vincent's words and music. This is this is a fascinating song. Um and again, this is this is a singer that I can hear some uh, vocal similarities to you. Um, and what is it about this song that means so much to you? I just really, <laughs> I just really love this uh, this Gene Clark, I mean Gene Vincent album that this this track is from. I love the whole thing. Um, there's some real rockers on it, like Bird Dog and and a couple others that mm. are like really frantic and kind of garagey sounding almost. He cut lots of rockabilly that. Everybody's familiar with his big hits like Bebop Alula and stuff, but this record that he did in 66 um, pretty much just flopped in the States. In fact, only a couple of singles from it came out on Challenge in the United States, but it, the entire recording session got picked up in England by um, London Decca. Okay. And they issued the whole album. So that was for a long time, that was the only way you could get the whole thing. And words and music just, 
it's so cool because I love the production quality of it. It's nice and simple, um, but really great players. Like I'm pretty sure it's Glenn Campbell on guitar and like uh, great drumming and then kind of nice like effects. Like there's some kind of like the um, kind of panning of like like a, some kind of like harmonica or something with a tremolo on it. Like right. really kind of cool, kind of creates an atmosphere. But also I just love the that it's a song about songs. Right. You know, words and music. Um, and so it almost is kind of from the point of view of uh, someone who has to endure living with a musician or songwriter, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Right. Like, all you give me is this, you know, your same old shtick and you're, uh, you write songs and that's great, but I need something a little more sometimes. Yeah. So I thought that was really cool. And uh, yeah, just it's a very cool song. It is a very cool song. It's, I mean, it's just so interesting to hear a singer and songwriter be dismissive of all I get from you is words and music. Yeah. Um, and he's also frustrated because he feels like she she's involved in another relationship with another right. man, and maybe she's invested more in that one than all he gets from her is words words and music. I mean, there's this kind of subdued anger right. underneath this really pretty sauntering song in a way, um, which I definitely have heard in your own songs as well. Uh, but something about like the bitterness and the delivery of all I get from you is words and music. I don't think. I don't think we're necessarily invited to like the singer or at least the narrator in that moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, I think there are moments like that in your songs, like you're not as pretty as I thought you were or as, as you thought you were. Uh, there there are several times um, in your catalog where we're not necessarily, the narrative voice isn't necessarily likable in that moment. Absolutely. Do you ever shy away from writing those Well, I lines? don't. I, th I think they're uncomfortable to write. Yeah, that is for sure. But sometimes you feel like um, it's it's such a you have a strong idea of how to manifest the thought mm -hmm. into some words or into a sound that uh, you just chase it down that hole. And sometimes it feels so strong, like oh yeah, I really should do this. This feels right. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like I have a way to describe this that makes will make people. Um, people will understand what I'm trying to say. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's important to not always be the hero in your story. I think mm. it's uh, because you're not in your life. Right. So, <laughs> right. you know, why not go ahead and, and uh, um, maybe uh, create an atmosphere where you're questioning who the, who the, who the victim is right. or who, who, where the sympathy really lies. Right. Um, and sometimes it's nice when a song has a little twist, right? Like um, you start off thinking it's one thing and then you realize it's something else. Or oh, like sure. Kind of thinking about um, who, whose narrative am I, am I supposed to be cheering for here? Right. Exactly right. Yeah, I think that's something that in 2020 is often misunderstood, the, the separation between, you know, what's supposedly easy to digest versus what the truth is. Yep. I mean, there's so many Beatles songs where we're not supposed to like where John or Paul are coming from in the song, um, but that's part of the point. Like, that's the kind of subtext of it. Um, and this song, in its own tiny little way, I think kind of communicates that as well. Uh, I want to, speaking of the Beatles, uh, I want to ask you about an artist that they admired a great deal, Arthur Alexander, Miles and Miles from Nowhere. A whistle scream ahead 
Now, um, this might be my favorite song on your mix. This is just an absolutely gorgeous song by one of my favorite uh, R&B singers of all time. Me um, too. Yeah, so what is it about this one? In, I was a little surprised by the song Choice. What is it about this one in particular? Um, I, now, I forget this guy's name who wrote this song, uh, but he was mostly a country and Western writer, and I think this was the first song that he ever pitched, and it got picked and so got recorded. Mm. But later, I think he wrote some stuff for Fair and Young or somebody. Um, but I think this is so cool because I just, I'm a huge Arthur Alexander fan. And I love that in many ways, um, he can bridge soul music, jazz, R&B, and country, and rock and roll mm. into this thing where it just blurs all the lines, you know, just like Dan Penn or, right, you know, there are a handful of people that can just really do it. Mm -hmm. They just really, it's just like, when you listen to it, you're like, God, this is great music. Right. And I, you don't think anything else, you know, like, um, and he's definitely, Arthur Alexander is just one of those people. He's got that lilt in his voice um, that's so country. Mm. And at the same time, you know, he can do straight R&B and just crush it. Um but this feels more, and it is more, a country song. And when in the years after he left Dot Records and went to move to Monument, which had mostly was like a vehicle for Roy Orbison's solo career, but then it kind of a, that label evolved into um, uh, a home for all kinds of um, Nashville mm. people who were maybe involved with the pop country world but a little on the edge of that. Right. Uh, Tony Joe White. Okay. And, you know, lots of interesting stuff. But this, all of the stuff that Arthur Alexander cut for, um, for Monument has that kind of like, it could just as easily be a country record as it could be an, a soul record. Right. And this one in particular about being a hobo is this, I don't know, just, his reading of it is really, really makes you feel what he's talking about it. And I love the one line where he's like watching things through a box car door as a box car moves like to and fro or something. Mm -hmm. And like as he's talking about it, like the beat's like, do, do, good, do, good. and it's <laughs> like, oh, wow, that's syncopation. Like, and he's like kind of like drawing your attention to mm -hmm. what the drums are doing and stuff. It's just a really super cool moment in the song but I, I love the whole song it's amazing two things struck me listening back to this and then kind of going further down the rabbit hole uh one was exactly what you're saying which is this so much of arthur alexander's stuff feels like a progenitor to ray charles's uh modern sounds and country music um the way he can blend these different uh genres so effortlessly i mean i, I think that was hugely impactful on records that came just a few years after but the you know, Arthur Alexander had more conventional kind of R&B hits uh, with big choruses. Of course, the Beatles covered Anna famously. Um, this one is such a different type of song. It, this, this is the type of song that Dylan would 
tried to rewrite and rewrite and rewrite over and over and over again because it's a verse refrain structure with this really poetic one-line refrain that everything else just kind of builds up to in every verse. It reminds me a lot of One Too Many Mornings by Dylan or, um, uh, I mean, Queen Jane approximately or just a million words, like three lines and then the tag, three lines and then the tag. Yep. Um, it's it's such a deeply poetic song. It really is. <clears throat> and it's... It's, you're right. I mean, you know, he's such a versatile performer. Um, and that's definitely the kind of song that just, you know, it could be many other artists. Like, this could be interpreted in so many different, like, subgenres, mm-hmm. you know, and still be completely valid. Um, and uh, the, another person that, well, it's also on the list is Charlie Rich. Right. And when I So there's a lot of similarity there as well. Right. Charlie Rich, like jazz trained piano player, um, you know, classically trained rather and wanted to play jazz and Sam Phillips wanted him to sing rockabilly. And, you know, it's like all these kind of different things are going on in his head about what he wants to be. And eventually like by the, he kind of tries on many different hats, you know, but then by, I feel like 66 or so he's, he's got his own thing going on and it's like, like this song in particular, the um, No Home, which is like a Ray Stevens song. Mm-hmm. In fact, like five of the songs from this album are Ray Stevens songs. That's part of the story right there. It's like, it's great. Charlie Rich is one of my favorite all-time artists. Right. I love his voice. I love the way he interprets a song. I love the chords and stuff that he chooses. They're always like really colored beautifully and mm-hmm. sevenths and stuff. Like, But he... Um, also, just the fact that somebody like Ray Stevens that you think of as like sort of a novelty mm. writer wrote this incredibly sad right. but poignant song. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, right, like, right. it's like he doesn't have to be a one-trick pony. Right. I, yeah, I was really um, struck listening to this one how so much on paper about the production of this song, and we're talking about Charlie Rich's No Home, uh, I fully realized, I think came out in 1974. That is the repackage. That's the repackage, okay. But there was, so the album that it came out on in the 60s is called The Best Years. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's that's where it originally was. So much about it is so impactful, but in lesser hands could be modeling. Just the string arrangements, just the, the whole orchestration of the thing. Do, 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 the little piano bits in right. there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And somehow he just stays on the right side of it. And yep. I don't know how he does it. It's, it is tricky terrain. Mm-hmm. And most people cannot pull it off, which is one of those things like, um, you know, he, he can do it. He mm-hmm. has the skill to be um, and completely embody that thing where you want to really feel like that person understands what it's like to be sad and try to keep going with life right rather than it's so easy to be maudlin especially with lots of strings and Mm -hmm. you know and but he he doesn't he never he never veers that way um and i don't know you know 
I don't know why he, I don't know how he does it. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of mystifying. I think that's why I like it so much. It's like certain people in the British rock scene in the 60s could do like British show tune influence and like the kinks, like there's a string of albums like that are all amazing and all have some of that kind of like British show tune type stuff going on. Right. But then some people do it and I just hate it. Right. Some people like try it and I'm like, that's awful. Yeah. Don't ever do that. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's so corny. It's so, right. um, you know, or like, uh, like some of the very Paul McCartney influence. Like, of course, he kind of brought that into back into pop music in England. And some people, like I say, some people can do it and it's interesting and you get, you know, the, the reference. Mm-hmm. And, but then some people just, you know, they try it and they just can't deliver it. It just comes off like kind of corny. Right. Was Charlie Rich on uh, in your house growing up? He, he was a course, a yeah, son, we, recording we, artist. We definitely heard Charlie Rich mm-hmm. uh, a lot. My grandfather had a jukebox in his house and he had Charlie Rich records on the jukebox. Was that common to have a jukebox in your house? Uh, I don't think so, but they were, um, he was involved in stock car racing and stuff here in Memphis. And they ran a concession stand and they were just, um, they were definitely um, very, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. (laughs) They were definitely people who drank a lot and partied a lot and lived a, uh, you know, lived a rowdy lifestyle. Okay. And definitely for them, it made sense to have a jukebox in their life. (laughs) I understand. (laughs) I guess that was, you know, if it wasn't common to have a jukebox in your house, I, that sounds like that was kind of the vibe of Memphis at that era anyway. Was yeah, that, um, people with pickup trucks and jukeboxes in their <laughs> houses. <laughs> um, you mentioned Sir Douglas Quintet earlier. Uh, the last song on your mix before we uh, talk a little bit more about your music is Wayne Douglas, I Don't Want to Go Home. cut it twice and the two versions are slightly different okay that's so and then the one that they chose for to put under the name wayne douglas which was kind of an attempt to rebrand him as a as a country pop artist right um so they called him something else and they kind of um put some overdubs on the song to have some strings and stuff um and it's really cool i like this version the best i like the sir doug version too but this to me this is the version that's the best because of that arrangement? I just really love the arrangement. Yeah. The, the lyrics are the same. Right. The, it's a little more, the tempo is mm-hmm. up, a little more up right. on this one, and I kind of like that too. Yeah, Sir Douglas, uh, it's slower. He really doesn't want to go home, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, what I really I like about this one also is, yeah, he's, it's, a, it's a musician who's saying um, he does want to go home, but he, but he thinks he doesn't. Mm. He's like, he's like, well, this is my lifestyle. I'm out here doing this. I'm playing, and and I sometimes I forget that I have a wife and family back right. home who are waiting for me to come home right. because I get caught up in having a good time with my friends. Right. And just to me, the way on this version, there's like a pedal steel that kind of dovetails with the strings, and it's kind of adds to the 
kind of the the moody vibe of the whole thing. Right. The the line about um it's not that I don't love her, which is when he starts introducing us to this idea of the family back home. Uh, you know, in the wrong hands would, could go awry, but it's so sweetly delivered. Do you really believe him? I mean, this is... For sure. Because, I mean, that's, that was his story. It's a for real thing. You mm. know, I mean, he was married with kids and um, Texas uh, did not like hippies. Mm. Texas, I mean, you know, all the bands that were doing drugs and stuff in the 60s either went to jail or they left Texas. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people, Janis Joplin, Sir Doug, the... Um, the 34 elevators, all those people got out of Austin because it was just the cops were coming down so hard onto them. Where do they go? San Francisco. Mm. So they all go to San Francisco and there's a huge party going on in San Francisco. Drugs, everybody gets, you know, kind of overindulges. And that's what he's saying in the song. It's not that I don't love her because the Lord knows that I do, mm-hmm. but the changes up in the city right. um, made a fool out of me. Right. Like, so he's saying, you know, I, I got two free. <laughs> right. Got two free. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just a fascinating idea. Um, well, I close every episode by asking the guest about a song of theirs that means a lot to me. And with you, uh, that was that was tough to pick just one. Um, but I want to ask you about your song, Falling Rain. Roll down your mind before it drives you insane. There's a whole lot more to this story. This is off Shattered, came out in 2014. Um, well, before we dive right into the song, uh, you know, this is, this is a raining sound song, but you're someone who's had a lot of bands over the years and a lot of different projects. How do you determine what song should go where? Sometimes I have to try it a few different ways with a few different people mm. before I find the dynamic that seems like it's the right fit, the right players, and the right song. Okay. And sometimes I keep songs around for a while before they really kind of find their spot. Okay. Is I've just always been amazed by and envious of your ability to not just multitask, but multitask successfully. I mean, especially like coming up in... Uh, the scene in the mid, late 90s and early aughts, not only were you in many different projects, but they all had real ambitions. Um, it wasn't ever just like, now I kind of hobby around with these guys and I kind of hobby around with those guys. How Do you find that like working on one project kind of like sharpens the knife for another? It does. Yeah. Because any every dynamic of every band, every person that you ever play with, is it's a gift. mm you get something from that relationship and that dynamic with that person that you will not get with any other person and multiply that, magnify that by a group of people. Mm. So that like three or four people all getting together or five people, that dynamic of hearing all those different players and all the little things and the way they play, um, that's like a... you. Whether that band, however long that band lasts, you will take that with you and that will become part of your dynamic. Mm-hmm for everybody you ever play with. So that's, to me, that's that's what you get from all the other players that you encounter, you know, on your journey. Um, they help show you what you are. Mm. Oh, that's a beautiful way of putting it. Now, in the case of Shattered, uh, this album and Falling Rain specifically, 
Um, do you remember where you were when you wrote this song? Like what catalyzed the writing of it? Were you in Asheville? I was in Asheville. Okay. Um, and I had just, I think this was not long after my friend Jim Shaw had passed away. Mm. And I remember at his um, funeral, um, a friend of ours who was a singer in a band performed uh, live uh, solo, just her singing at his funeral, doing uh, Fred Neal's, uh, what is that song? Um, a Little Bit of Rain. Mm. And uh, that was for the duration that he was dealing with cancer. That was his and his wife's song. That was their okay. song. And the thought in that song was, or the sentiment in that song is, um, for the most part, it was sunny. There was a little bit of rain. I see. So it's the, kind of that, you know, and that's kind of how they were looking at, you know, this ultimate farewell that we're about to have to endure. And uh, so when she sang it, it was super moving. Um, but then I was kind of thinking about him, thinking about that song and thinking about um, maybe some other way to use that same sentiment, um, but in a different way and, and say something different. Right. Um, but that, but definitely the thought of, of that stuck in my mind. Mm. Um, and so it's about kind of saying to someone who you realize is like really traumatized mm -hmm. and damaged, like that you empathize with what they're dealing with and that you're, um, you're a safe person. Right. You know, you can, you can be yourself and you can be whatever you need to be. You can be you and that's okay. And, uh, that, you know, um, that, because that's not all life is, but mm -hmm. if that, if you need to live that, you know, and, and work all that stuff out, that that's okay because, because there is some other part of life that's a little sweeter. Right. You know? Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's kind of all it is, is just, uh, it's just kind of a, a plea for tenderness. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Um, I'm fascinated by the line, roll down your mind, which starts the chorus. This is, this is my favorite type of writing, uh, songwriting, poetry, you name it, which is, Coins a very abstract phrase, but even if you're hearing it for the first time, you immediately understand what it is, even though it's abstract language. Now, for example, or put it another way, if that phrase existed before it was in your sh song, I'd never heard it before. But I remember the very first time I heard this song and the first time hearing you sing that, I, I immediately knew what you meant. And it's to this day um, a mantra for me. Whenever I feel like I'm too much in my head, it's roll down your mind, you know, just let the air in yeah that's that's awesome I'm, I'm i'm really glad because yeah sometimes i write things like that and i'm not sure if people understand what i'm saying or there was like another song there was an oblivion song where i remember kind of finishing the song and playing it for my wife and there was a line in it where it was like um um let me see what you are or something it was a little bit of a an awkward like mouthful of words mm. and she was like i don't know if it people are going to understand quite what that means or whatever. And it's like, well, if I sing it right, they'll know what I'm, what mm -hmm. I'm saying or whatever. <laughs> you know? Like, or I hope, you know. When you write something like that, do you take a victory lap? Like once in a while, I'll stumble on a line. I'll just go, okay, 
I'll I, take it and I just like walk away from the computer. I take a victory lap when I do a podcast and somebody tells me that they're <laughs> Perfect. Oh, that's what I'm here for. Um, I, I wanted to also ask you about just this album writ large because this song typifies the, the album from my experience anyway. It's so circumspect. It has so much generosity. It's very knowing. Um, is this the type of song that you feel like you, you could have written when, you know, maybe in 2002, 2003, or did it take some aging into? No, I think it takes time. Yeah. I think, and I think uh, I haven't even, my perspective has changed even since this record. So I've been working on a lot of songs and I'm, and I'm more and more conscious the older I get and the more I write, the more conscious of I am of how I'm changing as mm. a songwriter. When I was younger, I don't think I realized um, when I when I was making leaps or when I was changing or when I was I was just too much in the moment. Mm. So maybe that's part of you know when you get older you have uh, you can look back and kind of see the continuity of the of the whole thing a little bit better. Sure. Well, I think that um, you're you're doing your best work um, from everything that I've heard and and continue to. And I mean, that's just not often the case, uh, especially in the rock and roll world. Um, And so I just, it's really, really inspiring to have been a longtime fan. I first fell in love with Raining Sound from Time Bomb High School. uh, Was that 2002? Right. Um, My my big brother played that for me. And I I truly believe Shattered is as good an album as you've ever made. Oh, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. Yeah, of course. And um, we do... I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, mention that we have um, a reissue coming out. Home for Orphans is coming out uh, June 26th. Um, and what's that, like a 15th anniversary? It's about 15 That's, years ago, right? It was about, yeah. And it's it wasn't uh, lined up on any kind of timeline, but it was just it just so happened that last year um, I took all of the back catalog um, some things that have been on Sympathy and some things that have been on In the Red and one thing that Cyan put out and just licensed all of it to merge so that all of the back stock could be under one roof. I thought that was really, would just streamline everything for me. And then everything could also slowly be brought back into physical print. And so we started off with the um, Zion EP we did last year. This year we're doing the Home for Orphans. Okay. And probably next year we'll do Time by My School or... Uh, too much guitar. I haven't decided yet. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, yep. I didn't realize that. Now, last question um, about Home for Orphans. It's it's kind of like a rarities compilation. Some artists are resident are reticent to reveal those types of tracks. Um, what do you feel when you listen to them? To Home for Orphans. Yeah. So Home for Orphans was yeah it was like um, alternate takes right and and um, just kind of things that had been laying around or didn't get used and. To me, um, that's exactly what, if you have an audience that already is sold on what you do, mm-hmm. that's what they want. Right. I mean, that's like, and it was a, it's in some ways was a stopgap release because I had just moved, the band busted up. I was trying to put a new band together. Mm. I was like, okay. And everybody really liked too much guitar and the label's like, give me something else. Right. Like, I have all this stuff and, you know, and now when I listen back to it, I think it, it stands up as a record. Like it's, it's interesting because it wasn't really intended as a record that materials from all over the place. Mm -hmm. Um, But it really works 
in the sense that um, in the same way that when you buy like a, a Beatles, um, you know, bootleg LP with lots of outtakes from four different albums hobbled together or some Stones bootleg that has weird stuff from the early 70s. <laughs> like, right. It's like, if you're a fan, that's maybe more exciting right. than a brand new record because it's maybe a more intimate picture of something that somebody wasn't sure if they wanted to share it with you. And then they said, okay, here it is. Right. <laughs> right. It's You're continuing to let them in on kind of a little secret between right. the two of you. Exactly. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for your time today, Greg. This has been a real treat. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Cheers. And there you have it. My name is Chris Milam, and I'm easy to find on social media, at Chris Milam Music on Instagram, at Chris Milam on Twitter, chrismilam.com for all the other good stuff. Thank you so much to our amazing guest, Greg Cartwright, and our presenting sponsor, Music Export Memphis. The mix is produced by the OAM Network in Memphis, Tennessee, and is available on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.